Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community or both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainers Sander Dorr, Jim Sammons, and their guests in an all-new episode. And good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on wherever you're tuning in from. Today we have a wonderful guest again, Becky Saville. Good to have you, good to see you here. Hey, nice to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks, yeah. Bit of a, a whirlwind week, but super excited to be here. I have got a hint of a cold, so apologies if I sound a bit grim. But I'm hoping it will give me that kind of um, gravitas to my voice <laughs> by it being a bit lower. Nice and husky. <laughs> So it's been a it's been a whirlwind week, but it has been a highlight in this week. Um, oh, it's a good question. Um, I suppose yeah. Well, we launched my book just over a week ago, and then seeing people's names come up on my uh, email that I haven't met, that I haven't bribed, uh, who are actually buying the book, <laughs> it's a very surreal feeling. That's uh, yeah, it gives a little buzz every time that comes through. How was it to just launch it? Because I, we, we've seen a nice little clip that you've been spreading on, on social media of you uh, and your husband, Rich, um, unpacking the box, if I'm correctly. Mm-hmm. How was that? T- take us through the moment that you finally got in your hands the actual physical copy of your work. It was one of those moments where you forget that you're not breathing for a little bit. Like when you start, like then the final bit, the box comes open and you see it there. You have you like two minutes later while you're looking at it, you go, oh yeah, I haven't actually taken a breath in for a bit because you're just the anticipation is so high. But it was so, it yeah, it was just one of those achievements that, um, just yeah, makes you really makes you really proud of yourself. We were so proud to be holding it, and then the anxiety comes in of going, oh, I've got to check. There's no printing errors or typos <laughs> or anything, you know, quality checking. But yeah, it was. Oh, it's just utter pride in yeah, in us for doing this together. We've always thought writing a book would be cool, and then actually doing it and having it there in our hands was, um, yeah, one for the scrapbook. I can imagine the the book. Yeah, go, Jim. What would like um, a year from now, if you look back, what would what would tell you or show you that your book has a great outcome like uh it had the impact you hoped and it was worth all the the blood sweat and tears that you poured into it i think just hearing from individual stories that they have um felt more engaged in their own journey to expertise that they have um been able to take career steps that maybe they didn't know where to go or how to do it before uh, that's even one person telling me that is makes it all worthwhile really that uh, sounds a bit cheesy but uh it, we didn't write the book because we were you know smart business heads who thought there's a gap in the market we can make billions of dollars or whatever we wrote it because I personally felt that gap and I wanted to and I was mentoring other scrum masters so I was going I think I can help people and knowing that I had done that mm-hmm. would be don't worry about being cheesy. We like cheese here. Don't get us started on pineapple, but we really like cheese. <laughs> that, that's great. Um, you know, I'm, I'm listening to, to a book now and 
I would I would wonder what what that author's answer to that question would be. Um, or as an author, maybe here's a follow up to that, Becky, is how are you going to make it possible for you to hear those stories? Like, as a, have you gotten any advice or does the publisher help or have you thought about how are you going to solicit that those stories or feedback? Or are you just going to hope that some that you get an email or you bump into somebody at a coffee shop or in your work? So we're self-published, so we've got no help from uh, any publisher on feedback. We are doing uh, online meetups called Feel the Learn, where we're using these techniques uh, so people can come and experience them and uh, hearing the less the feedback from that is one of the good things uh, that uh, gives us insight into whether the, the ways of working and the activities are beneficial uh, in real time. Otherwise, just lots of coffee chats. There's lots of meeting people, uh, hearing, and I'm absolutely equally excited to hear when stuff doesn't work. So if someone came to me and said, actually, this didn't make sense for my brain, that gives me fuel for the next thing. Mm -hmm. So I can work out, okay, for uh, this type of learning or this type of uh, setup, this type of person, there's still more work to do. Awesome. Speaking of people, the book is titled Workplace Learnings for Humans. Humans sounds oddly specific. I mean, obviously my dog is not going to read it. Why so specific on the title? One of the comparisons that we um, we sort of found when we were learn researching learning science is that a lot of the way that we approach learning is treating ourselves like a computer. So treating ourselves like someone who can, like a, a machine that can scan pages and retain all the information and then regurgitate it and that kind of um processing that uh i personally have done in my learning i've read books and gone well that's it i've, I've mastered that now um or articles or, or gone on courses and thought yep yeah, i'm i'm qualified i'm now ready for it uh whereas actually that's what we expect machines to do it's not at all how humans and brains and um people work at all isn't it strange in that sense that our the whole educational system is still based on that a your your book kind of trigger it, it to me it, it's in the same realm as uh training from the back of the room for instance which is a whole different concept to typical classroom where where the teacher is standing in front of the class and just sending fire hose effect and expecting their students to retain able to drill everything in the exam. And that's pretty much it. While both your book and training from the back of the room and all these other books, that are super useful, immediately make super clear why this does not work. So why do you feel, why do you think, I'm just curious about your thoughts about this. Why do you think that we're still our educational system and many other courses uh, are still designed like that teacher class send that's it. That's an interesting question. The training for the back of the room book is incredible. And I know that a lot of teachers use those kind of techniques. Maybe as students, you sometimes don't recognize that they're there. Um, but that way of um, getting the depth of learning uh, is certainly there. I think part of the reason that um, we don't do necessarily the, um, the stuff that's in our book, we talk about cohort learning, so self-directed cohort learning. So people with a common passion getting together to do this themselves. So the whole point is that it's um, 
uh, how-to guide. And I think one of the reasons that we don't do that is that culturally it's maybe not as acceptable to say, hey, I want to learn something new. I'm maybe not good enough at this. I want to um, define my own path. We, we're trained in school and, and university that there is a set curriculum. And if you follow this path, you will end up at the place that you want to be. Whereas actually the skill sets that we're seeing are diversifying rapidly. And there is not, I mean, even being a scrum master, as an easy example from my career, I've never met a scrum master who's come through the same path as I have. It's not, and who's going on the same path that I am. They are, careers are so different now, but we are uh, programmed to follow curriculums. And deviating from that is maybe a bit uncomfortable and maybe a bit unknown that that's an option that we have. Speaking of which, just in our prior recording chat, you mentioned, I never knew that about you, that you were an audio engineer. And that's, those two are vastly different from an audio engineer to a PST and, and, and Scrum Master, if I'm correct, to now an author. Tell us more about that. Why, why the switch from an audio, well, just step back. Why audio engineer to start off with and why the career switch? So I, I studied music at, um, at school and at university and big lover of theater. And there's just something so sound is beautiful. Like sound can change. You take the sound out of films and it changes it. You take make mess sound up in a theater show and it changes it. It's such a powerful thing, but it's invisible. And that always intrigued me. Um, and so yeah, theater was the thing that I did during school, like sound engineering during school, during university and uh, professionally for a little bit afterwards. The reason I changed away from it is because it's not really that sustainable a career. Um, and <laughs> I was working 70 hour weeks, yeah. never seeing anyone else, never having weekends. And it was fun, but it was fun for a bit. So I carried it on as a secondary and then got a real job uh, uh, that went into using the other skills that I learned. I did um, music and electronics at university. So I did the other side, which is programming. And then from there, Scrum Mastery. They don't cross over apart from podcasting <laughs> very much. Um, I think the the thing that made it, uh, the skill that I learned the most from sound engineering was dealing with stress. The stress in theatres is a lot different to stress in corporate businesses. In theatres, I would have... Uh, we had one occasion where a strobe light got stuck and wouldn't turn off and I had, we had to evacuate the theatre and there's 300 people that you're trying to evacuate and keep safe right there and then in the moment, keeping calm, giving clear instructions, all that stuff. It's very different to a status report in a bit sudden, you know, the perspective of it has really helped me to, um, to keep calm, I suppose. I can imagine that theatre stress is more explosive yeah. stress and, and <laughs> corporate stress is more prolonged, Jim. Yeah, I bet you have that your audio engineering gave you some more skills that you maybe just don't use every day or see all the time. Like uh, uh, my assumption is that engineers have to be good at troubleshooting um, and maybe dealing with non-functional requirements and validation. Like, yeah, the thing went out, the, the audio's there, but it's not clear enough or it's not too compressed not enough compression all these things so you're kind of fine-tuning soliciting feedback 
asking people, what'd you like? What didn't you like? A little bit more of this, a little bit less of that. I, I see a lot of, you know, agility and, and product type of ideas there. I would also assume, correct me if I'm wrong, that you probably had to get good at troubleshooting, like why things weren't working. And as scrum masters, aren't, aren't we troubleshooters in a, in a sense? Yeah, absolutely. I love that comparison. Yeah. Audio engineering would be again, theater full of people, microphone isn't working with someone mid song happened uh, a few times and uh, trying to work out, okay, well, what's the problem now? What do I do next? What are the options we have on the spot? Uh, which definitely helps. Um, yeah. And the, the stakeholder relationship kind of thing. So sound is very subjective. Mm-hmm. People don't hear things the same. So it might be that to me, it sounds absolutely perfect to a director or the mum of the person who's performing it doesn't sound quite right because maybe the parent of the performer wants the vocals much higher because they want to hear their child the director maybe wants to hear something else that brings the emotion into the scene sorry for the noise um so very very subjective and product is subjective too you there is no right answer for developing the perfect product it doesn't exist yeah. And last week, I, I haven't built a computer in years. And I decided, maybe regretfully, to build my own computer. And it wouldn't work. And I got really frustrated with myself, A, for t- making my own life harder when I have enough complexity. But then I fell on the first half of my career, you know, 13 years of IT troubleshooting experience. And I eliminated a bunch of variables and went one by one. And variable number two is the problem fixed it, built the computer. And, you know, it it could be a little bit of a stretch to connect that to what we do now. But I do think, and something I see in younger people, or or maybe um, even adults that haven't had diverse work experiences, they lack that troubleshooting skills. Like I know many people who in my situation would have boxed it all up and taken it to Geek Squad or to the store and say, this doesn't work, or they would have returned it. But I think most people would have maybe done some troubleshooting, but I, I would assume that your, your engineering both lets you validate. Like I would, I would bet that you stood in the back of the room and listened and then made adjustments. I mean, that's like maybe when we're talking to a product person and they don't ever observe the people using their product. So they, they're not getting that firsthand feedback. Just a couple thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sound is all, of, sound is all about inspect and adapt every millisecond. They're doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. So, how it's do adults learn? Oh, go ahead, Sunder. Sorry. No, I think your question is a thousand times better. Go. I I was going to ask how you feel adults learn something in the workplace, and what what are you seeing at maybe the macro level, or or what patterns are you seeing in how that's going? So, there's a big difference to the way that adults are learning uh, day-to-day to to the ways that adults should be learning effectively. There are some people who are um, smashing it and are building communities that are taking over and that are doing really well. There are, um, I meet lots and lots of people who really want to do more, but they're not sure what to do. So they just stop. So there is a good wave of very talented people who are becoming disenfranchised, maybe getting a little bit behind just because they, um, because there isn't a set curriculum, because they don't have the next step there in front of them and they need to work it out for themselves. Uh, so in terms of the 
research that is in our book and that we've done and that we has been around for hundreds of years. It's not new stuff. This isn't anything that is groundbreaking and has only come out this year. Um, being self-directed is one of the first things that makes a big difference. If you're told to learn something by someone else, like in that set curriculum, if you're saying, right, well, now you need to learn about uh, this topic, which you go, oh, that's no interest to me at all. You pay lip service and you basically flush it out of your brain as soon as you don't need it anymore. So that's not really learning. That's um, just quick cramming and that's gone. That's not long-term learning that's going to benefit anything. But if you like something and it's something that you're really interested in, it sticks so much better. You're more motivated to do it. You put in a hell of a lot more effort to be able to learn it. Like we've all had stuff we've come across day to day and then gone, I'm going to read that outside of my nine to five because I can't get that out of my brain. I'm some people, you know, maybe waking up at two o'clock in the morning going, yeah, but what about this? And the things that we're passionate about that we're self-driven with, we obsess over. That's what we do as humans. So finding the things that you are passionate about and that you obsess over will be so much more beneficial learning wise mm -hmm. than following what someone else tells you. Yeah. I... So that's one of the, the main things I think. What is one of those things that you had to learn or were told to learn that didn't really resonate with you, but still you had to go through e.g. say for me. There were certainly some things in my, uh, university course, which were mandatory, but not very interesting. So part of the music stuff that I did, I wasn't very interested in the, uh, the modern classical kind of modern, uh, orchestral things where it's, um, it's not very pleasant to listen to. It's quite messy. It's quite abstract. I wasn't particularly fond of that. I didn't really engage with it a lot. And so I think that was the lowest mark I got of any module at uni because I did just enough to get through it. Yeah, it, it was interesting. I was talking to a scrum master earlier this week and we were kind of, he, he was asking basically, can you teach me just enough? And I said, I can. How is that going to serve you? And he talked for a little while. He's like, I just need to get past this next meeting, this next sprint, this next thing. It was very temporary for him. And I said, and I know he likes music. So I said, and to bring this back to music and audio, I said, look, I bet you that a guitarist could teach somebody to play Green Day in about an hour, right? Couple chords, two finger positions, strum away, you're playing Dookie but they're not going to be able to play orchestra level classical guitar. But the difference is both of those things are value. You just want to jam out to, to the Ramones and green day. Fine. Grab a guitar, learn how to do the basics and play. But it's, it's not possible for you to take those skills and directly go play classical music. But the opposite is true. So a classical guitarist, you can jam a Stratocaster in their hands and I'm, guarantee they can read the music and play you know when i come around how do you see that idea connecting to the workplace like when somebody has like is there a right way to learn start with the basics and develop the hunger to go deeper or you know learning classical guitar is probably a turnoff to most people like i have no interest in doing it but i would love to be able to grab a guitar at a at a campfire and play you know, uh, Johnny Cash. 
what do you think about like how big of a barrier it creates in some people to only want to do it the right way versus kind of somebody else who's setting the bar too low and say, I just know the, I just need to know the bare minimum to get me through the next week or month. I think what I've, when I was creating these sort of ideas and and playing with them a lot, agile and learning come together just so nicely because we don't know everything that we need to know. We don't know when we first pick up a guitar that we want to become we might have an idea that classical guitarist, you know, in, a, in an orchestra is maybe a, a thing that we want to do, but you have to keep inspecting upon that. You have to keep checking. I'm going to invest five hours a week practicing. Do I want to do that? Do I still want to, you know, is that, is that getting me to the right career path? Or have I got to the point where I can play songs around the campfire and actually that's great and I'm good and I want to go learn something else. So iterating learning and constantly having that reflection, because if it's a scrum master, it might be they go, okay, I've learned the basics. I didn't enjoy that. I don't find that very interesting. Is this the right career path for me? Did I want to know just enough about Scrum so that I can work adjacent to Scrum but not be a leader in Scrum? Mm. So there's all kinds of product lessons that we can take into We quite often uh, talk about treating yourself as a product. So doing those iterative loops and delivering some working value. So, okay, now I, in terms of Scrum, now I really get the product general something like that and I've applied that I have done something with that knowledge okay so now do I actually feel like that was enjoyable do I want to go to the next stage and become uh, an even greater scrum master or actually did I want to learn about product owner because I want to be a product owner so allowing ourselves to have those pivots constantly with learning even with books read the first 20 pages of a book and pause and go this is worth, you know, spending another hour reading. This is worth doing some activity to collect the information, to share it with someone else, to really embed it in my brain. We should really be um, treating it a lot more like an iterative development rather than, uh, you know, four-year investment that that's it, you know, a waterfall project where we're going to invest in it and then four years later we'll see whether we're actually on the right track. That takes quite an investment from your practical perspective as well, because, and and to be honest, to give you my personal opinion about your book, I don't see any reason why this should not be in the same realm or same level as training from the back of the room or liberating structures, because it's that applicable, it's that tangible, it's that useful. So that's something that I really enjoy, but it does require Scrum Masters or whoever is using this uh, this book as their guideline to free up some time to really read through us. Uh, read through it apply it and then reflect on how did it go is this what i expected how it would actually turn out and then start uh, adapting to that so in your experience what can people do to make sure that they actually invest the time and allocate that energy if you will the organizational energy as well to make sure that these lessons that you and your husband written or wrote down are actually applied that's a really good point there is a huge cultural um, kind of two faces going on. Businesses are really keen for people to learn more and to upskill because it's better business, but they also don't want the delivery to stop. And there's a real two-faced approach that that you feel as, as someone who works in an organization or is trying to help this happen. I, there was one company that 
I I read their exciting report, you know, their, their things that we, we, you know, on average, people did 30 hours of learning last year in a year, 30 hours, less than an hour a week. Okay. Mm. That's what you're showing off about. That's the level that we're at. Okay. <laughs> so it was, what we try and do is we try and, uh, making space in, uh, calendars is is one part so actually having that guilt-free time where it's okay delivery stops for a little bit and that's okay but there still has to be the um the culture there that that is guilt-free that the resources and the abilities to do it are there but also kind of like you know in hackathons and things we're going to get out your way and let you do it quite often you introduce this idea to businesses they immediately go okay so this is the things that i want people to learn and they try and control it because it's new and it's scary and it's expensive. But seeing those, like you do in Scrum, like you do in iterative development, showing the progress once a month to ensure that investment continues is really important. If you say to businesses, we'll let people have two hours a week, four hours a week, whatever it is, to invest in learning, they have to see the return on investment. Otherwise, they're going to take that away as soon as a flame, a fire comes up uh, for delivery we have to be able to show that it's worth their money and that they are going to get employees that can work more efficiently or um you know bring new ideas and break new boundaries quick uh shout out to one of our colleagues in in the netherlands you know zerion was telling me their their organization gives people a day a week to focus on professional and personal development and I, I thought that was amazing. And 10 years ago, everywhere I went and everywhere I worked it was all about Google time. Like, oh, we all want to do what Google's doing and give everybody, you know, 10% of their week and all that. But there was all these rules, like you can only do it on Friday afternoons or you have to do a book report to the department or all this. And it was, it felt very gross and punitive or risky because it felt like you were being constrained your growth and learning and acumen was being constrained. And I just really like this making space for people to focus on their development. And in my entire career, I've worked at one place that truly did what they said they would do and make that space. And they said, look, we want you to learn something. We hired you for what you can already do. But we also hired you because we know you're capable of more and and we don't care what that learning is like it could be in a trade, it could be in a craft, it could be in mathematics, it could be anything but we'd really like it if occasionally you could connect it to what we do for a living, but we just want you to be better. One out of I don't know how many ever places and and companies I've ever worked for so I think your book and your work has a lot of potential to change the conversation around that. But how do you see organizations balancing that focus on delivery and execution with like, if, if I took you to Ollivander's and bought you a magic wand to, to make that happen or at least get it started, how how would they start? Well, thank you for seeing the uh, potential in it so far. I think it's one of those pivot points. When you look at the data as to the jobs market and what's happening, there's almost a point where businesses aren't going to have a choice because if you're the company that doesn't do this, everyone's going to walk all the good talent that you have, all the people that are going to be making the big differences. are going to go somewhere else. When you look at the stats as to why people leave companies, the top thing is money. Second thing is flexibility. 
The next three things are because they want mastery. They're all related to mastery. They're all related to developing their skills. So basically, once you give people enough to uh, live, they can feed their families, they can pay their bills, they can have fun. They are flexible enough so that they can see their families and they can see their friends and they can have fun. Everything else, the reason why they want different jobs that they change is because they want to get better. They want that mastery. And so I think if companies don't make those investments and you say there's some companies that are coming up that are doing one day a week, all of the good talent is going to go to that company. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like one of those pivot points in businesses where if we see some making the investment, we will see them thrive more than the ones that don't. Because if you invest in people, you're going to get better products. You're going to have um, even just saved retention costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the amount that skill sets are changing. So if you think about you know, engineering-wise, the rate at which engineers have to learn new technologies is increasing rapidly. In terms of what's happening in Agile as well, there's more and more conversations, there's more and more challenges that, you know, things like pandemics happen and we suddenly will have to learn new things. The world is changing super fast right now. And if you don't have people who can learn things, it affects actually outcomes of business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's more like it's... What I see in the future is for companies who, not necessarily, I'm not saying that my book will save your business. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying that if you don't invest in learning and the, and really not just the consuming of learning, not just investing in the learning management systems to give people content, but investing in your belief in people to get better and giving the the, the space and the the culture that makes that feel safe and exciting and engaging and allowing people to collaborate together. We've talked about... Uh, learning on your own uh, you know if you have two hours off on your own to learn something it's a lot less effective and you're probably going to get distracted whereas if we met all together and had two hours we're going to be getting so much more value out of it so creating those environments is the way that i think businesses will will keep managing to keep up we talked about you know pace of agile in terms of product development there's the same thing happening with people Mastering agility only works with organizations aligned with our values, and that's exactly why we are excited to work with our sponsor. Scrum Match is the free platform for professionals run by professionals. On Scrum Match, true Scrum Masters get hired by companies serious about the popular framework. The awesome people behind this platform have decades of experience, among them a professional Scrum trainer for Scrum.org. They have interviewed, trained, and coached hundreds of like-minded people, and they use this exact experience to make you stand out from the crowd and help you get in touch with companies looking for true Scrum Masters. So go to scrummatch.com and sprint to your dream job. Yeah, I think that's where businesses need to take a good hard look at themselves because I think it's going to be more self-focused rather than entire business or cultural focused. Um, It's the same with working from home, talking pandemic, right? Uh, Now we're talking, now the whole discussion is coming back up again about are we post working from home? Does everyone need to come back to the office? What works? And I think that's, again, that's a sell thing, right? The, our team, we need to discuss it. What works for our team? What might work for my team might not work for your team. So maybe my team really enjoys working from home and they're most productive doing that. But your team while working for the same company uh, might be more productive from being at the office all the time. And Jim is a, Jim's team has the middle ground where they do two days from, from home and three days from the office or, you know, one of those hybrid versions. 
And I think that's the same with uh, the, the um, personal development days or how much time that we need to invest to grow as people. Some people re really retain from just by reading a book. Other people learn better from uh, your book, but applying it and so on. But it's uh, we still seem to be f trying to find that, that silver bullet that Harry Potter won that's going to save us from how to move forward. And I think we should we we could all benefit from a little Mr. Miyagi and Karate Kid from actually applying stuff, but also being taken by the hand a little bit, shown the way, and then learn from what we can do with that. Uh, what would you say has been your biggest personal learning from writing this book, and what can organizations learn from that? <laughs> That's a really good question. I think it was just the overwhelming, almost smack in the face of how stupid I'd been in terms of how I'd learnt stuff. So to become a PST, to um, to be, you know, have the scrum master abilities that I have, I have devoured many, many books. I have been to meetups. I have worked my butt off to get myself through the qualifications through everything and then when you read the book you go oh, I have wasted quite a lot of that time learning in a way that was never going to be effective so sitting down and reading books on my own and not talking to anyone about it <laughs> me uh, someone at my, my work today mentioned turn the ship around they said oh have you read this book and I went yeah couldn't tell you much about it now and I remember at the time thinking how powerful and how amazing it was. And now I'm thinking, <laughs> I haven't used that. Therefore, it's kind of waste in a way. So I think that was the almost the most horrible thing to <laughs> realise is that this stuff was there 10 years ago when I started and I didn't use it. And I could have approached it better. I could have been it's it's the I think the main thing was the courage to reach out to other people learning with other people is much much better you get so many more senses you get different perspectives you um you're engaged with it more it it sticks with you you can explore things and pull things apart and you get tested and it hurts your brain a lot more when you talk to someone else and I resisted those opportunities because I thought oh it's I I can spend that time reading more books or reading these articles or watching people do stuff, but actually doing the things I didn't prioritize. And yeah, now that I do. Yeah, I saw a headline pass by quickly this week, so I didn't click on it, but it, it basically said that there's now proof that learning by doing as an idea is not true. I know there's a lot of dubious science in the world of learning and education. I've got some teachers in my close network and, you know, they'll tell me there's, there's some things that are generally accepted as truths um, around like kinesthetic learning and, um, you know, flip learning and all, any of these, these, you know, modern learning methods, but learning by doing, uh, I think it's hard to argue with the idea but it may not be enough because, you know, one thing just, uh, I'm trying to have empathy for what you're saying about how you felt dumb that, you know, or, or ineffectual, like you wasted time is I heard somewhere years ago that 
we need as humans to hear something seven times from four different sources before it sets in and before we truly believe it. So that means this is a quantity game. That means you can't read one thing or take one class and have it like take root and help you. So none of us, the three of us are generally in the same business. We don't know if we're the first time somebody's heard something or if we're that seventh and fourth time that is going to inspire them to do more. So maybe turn the ship around was only number three for you and you needed a few more experiences before your brain said, you know what, Becky, there is something here. And I think that that realization for me ha is a struggle because I want to go take one thing, read one book and have the heavens open up. But sometimes that's that's just never going to happen. And sometimes I haven't had enough or lived enough or learned enough or read enough to make those connections. I love that. There is supposed to be, if you, I'm not, not a neuroscientist, I don't pretend to be, but it's supposed to be that you never really forget anything unless you have a degenerative um, condition. Your brain doesn't actually lose any information that you've ever had. There's all these films, isn't there, that, that people can, you know, you're only using 10% of your brain and you take a pill and then you can see the whole lot and you can learn languages by, you know, all those kind of uh, extensions of it. But when you learn something, it, it creates matter in your brain. And it's supposed to be that that doesn't degenerate until aging takes hold. So when, you know, me reading Turn the Ship Around, if I've translated that into part of my brain, it should still be there. But you're right, maybe we need more connections and the repetition is the way that that tiny little bit becomes more prominent and is actually usable. Yeah. So I like that. Yeah, I think it's about the right thing at the right time. And there's been books, and, and I hate to use the overplayed that hits different, but there's things that I've went back and listened to a yeah. second time or read a second time. <laughs> and I'm like, that hits different now because I've lived some since then. And, you know, when Sunder and I started recording these episodes, I went back and listened to some of the really early ones. And I'm like, you know, this might not have been as impactful for me last month, last year, five years ago, but now it's exactly what I need when I needed it. And I, I, th I think that's normal. And I, I, I think I mentioned this on one of our previous episodes, but there is a study that came out in the US that said 49% of Americans have read more than one book, one or more books in 2023. But the sad thing is that means 51% of them read zero. So if, if learning and motivation and, and all these things are a quantity game, it's hard to see how that's going to help if you've read zero. Now, look, there's a lot of factors that go into that, but I think understanding as a learner what methods you learn best with, what motivates you, what you find enjoyment in is good. I think your cohort thing is, is very impactful because I, I'm thinking of one company I worked at where I knew I was getting smarter just by being around my, my colleagues. Like I was absorbing things from them, getting energy from them. And um, that inspired me to be better. And I'm curious, even if like corporate L&D, if every corporate L&D department just shut their doors tomorrow, what, what structures have you seen out there or heard about for peer-to-peer -peer learning or cohort-based learning or um, that type of idea in companies big and small? That's really shocking about the books. Uh, that's going to stick with me. Um, 
I think the communities of practice is one of the strongest ones. Communities of practice or chapters, however you want to name them, they spring up all the time from people's desire to get together and learn. And they are commonplace in mm-hmm. so many ways. They quite often have a um, tumultuous existence um, with people taking ownership of them, you know, finding the time to organise them alongside their work, getting engagement. They quite often have a bit of a rocky uh, rocky path. But that's certainly one of the ones that you can see that people want more when they form groups off their own back. You can see that if yeah. they're learning... In we the- had Cliff... Yeah, we had Cliff Hazel on recently from Spotify. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, chapter skills, whatever we want to call those communities are important. Um, one, the, the number one question I get around communities of practice, and I, I'm going to ask this of you, like kind of with that lens or even this, this cohort is, should they be structured and facilitated or should they be completely organic, like, uh, and nebulous in structure? Like, where do you, how, how would you suggest a group of people that want to, they care about the same thing, they want to learn the same thing, or they just want to be a group? What do you think? Structure, no structure, somewhere in the middle? It depends, doesn't count. <laughs> well, yes to both. I think you have to have space for both. If you only ever have unstructured meets, you probably quickly have people seeing that I can maybe get my value somewhere else. I've been in those, seen those ones where people meet up for coffees and it starts really well and then people naturally drift off a little bit. If you do too much structure, again, you get the same thing where people maybe feel a bit too constrained. So I think a, a healthy mix of both is needed to allow people to freely explore have those coffees network and just let the conversations go but also if you want to if the group wants to together learn something new it might need a bit more structure to actually feel the progress uh, towards something Mm. that's set so i think both are needed i've seen groups do exclusively uh both sides and they 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 both lacked either the the heart when you did it full structured or the the kind of motivation when you did it totally unstructured from what I saw. Interesting. I, I totally agree. And I've been to a few meetup, well, a lot of meetups over the years where it was a great hour, a great two hours, but there was no, there was nothing out of it. There was no structure. There was no why it was great. You know, pizza, beer conversation, but it's very easy for those things to fall off my calendar or get superseded by something more important. But I, I totally agree that when I walk into a community of practice, a meetup or, or something like this, overly structured, driven, agenda driven, heavily facilitated, that also, unless I'm totally into the topic, it, it can turn me off usually as well. Sunder, what about you? I know that the Netherlands, you can't even go to a gas station without bumping into a PST or a consultant at a big company. So like when you go out to these type of meetups or groups, what's your preference? Like, I, I know you're, you're a pretty unstructured come as you are type person, but what do you, what do you think? Um, I I'm, I'm really having a hard time not to say it depends as he says it, uh, audience, somebody send him a bill for that. Yeah. Yeah, you should. I would go for the preference of the audience because I can go with both. I can talk for hours on end without having any agenda. 
uh, and still apply structure. While I know that there are the vast majority would like structure and would like to know what's the agenda and what format are we going to use. And uh, that kind of ties into a different discussion that we had with Zirian um, earlier about professional facilitation. There's, there's a very interesting question in the scrum.org's um, professional scrum facilitation skills class that asks, uh, should a facilitator have more than one skill? or know about more structures. And I would wholeheartedly say yes, because if you're gonna be a one, two, for all liberating structure guy to try to solve everything, it's gonna be a shit show. And that would apply to your question here as well. I think you should have the ability to adapt on the fly to the, cir to the circumstances. And so I would say it's circumstantial, um, circumstantial facilitation. So whether that's with structure or without structure or complete lone wolf and then see where you end up, um, see where the wind blows or whatever is needed at that, that moment in time. Yeah. How do you guys feel about there's the thing that goes around quite often about that you, if you're the smartest person in the room, you should leave that room because it's no longer valuable to you. Find a new room. You find a new room. You find, you... Yeah, that's why I always wait outside of the building. Watch people go in and see whether it's valuable to you. Um, I I was wondering what yeah how you guys felt with it because there's a lot of benefit to be gained in if you are the, the smartest person in helping others you the upwards mentoring kind of model yeah where you learn a lot by talking to people who haven't got the experience that you have and it helps you to explore your own uh, strengths and weaknesses through that that relationship but do you find uh, you know as yeah. Um, pretty experienced people in your field do you find that you enjoy that kind of um one where you are the smartest person and you can help other people or do you tend to gravitate more towards where you are the in a room full of people you can learn around new things from it's given the context as well like if, if it's going to be about the, the the classes that we teach on professional scrum if i'm there to be a professional scrum teacher i hate it when people can correct me about scrum because then that means that I'm not doing my job correctly. And that makes me feel that I'm not qualified for doing whatever I should do. Uh, luckily, usually people that come to my class have something to learn. And so that rarely happens. I do like to be proven wrong about a lot of stuff and stuff that I don't know much about. Please educate me. Please tell me more about it. And I think these days people tend to listen, but not hear. So they're in the conversation, the words come in, but it's still stuck in level one. So they tend to process it to whatever they want to hear and they're fa fairly biased or they try to relate it to a certain situation where they have been in and the words that come in just do not fit the, the things that they want to hear. And they're not listening. You see that with politics, for instance, all the time. People are super biased. It's a horrible example, but a great one at the same time. Whatever comes in should either resonate with whatever I want it to be, or you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And I see that in the workplace as well. Either Jim is saying something in, in his opinion sucks, or because I like whatever he's saying, he's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I, to, to come back to your question, Becky, like I, I really like the quote, if you're the smartest person in the room, first off, check yourself, because you're probably not, or maybe for a given topic you are. But um, a friend of mine who was living in New York City at the time told me that's what he loved about being in New York is he was never the smartest person in the room. And this was an extremely intelligent person. Um, 
both formally educated and just life experience. And, you know, I tend to gravitate in social settings or even workplace settings to interesting people. And what can I learn from them? And whether it's something work-related or usually and hopefully something totally not work-related. Um, I think it's, I, if we even step up one more level, just get yourself in different rooms. Like uh, one of the things I was telling some of the, the people at one of my clients last week was, it's great that you're learning from each other because I kind of nudged them and created the first community of practice around agility for them. And I said, but you got to get outside these walls because all you're going to do now is learn from each other and that's going to become very constrained. So back, you know, pre-2020, it was much easier to go to meetups in person and talk to other people. But now you just have to do it a little differently. They're still out there. But one of the best things I did early in my Agile career was, and even my prior to that, was going out and meeting people who were doing what I was doing at different places and saying, can I come into your office? Can we have a meeting at your office? Can we have lunch at your desk? And then we would talk about like, tell me about that big thing on the wall. How do you use that? Or can I, like, I remember asking one client if I could go in and um, can I come look at your team rooms? Can I just observe a, a daily scrum? And I'm like, wow, you guys are really good at this. And I never even thought about doing this or tell me about this tool you have or this thing you looked at. And I think it's even, I think that's kind of my my tweet length summary of this is put yourself in different rooms with different people. And it is hard to see good things not coming from that. I think you can extend it beyond. There's lots of, uh, amazing agile people that um do brilliant talks as well where they've not gone into another agile room but they've gone into a room that is seemingly unrelated and found something that's helpful um the example that um comes to mind is i saw paul goddard do a talk years ago and he's got his book of improving agile teams where he's used improv theater to actually make a difference with uh, agile teams and there's loads of examples of people who have gone and done something that is totally unrelated or met someone totally agnostic you know who doesn't know what agile is and come away going wow okay that's an interesting perspective that's something that I can take and I can do something new with and I think the Mm -hmm. the um the broadening of perspectives beyond your comfort zone has even big benefits sometimes I would agree and I think that's the that's the 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 wider perspective of diversity, right? These days we tend to stick diversity in a, more of a gender box, but these diversity of experiences, opinions, but also perspectives on things that are completely unrelated to Agile um, just bring so much more to your personal development or the way that we can build a product in and by itself. I think that's one of the biggest ways we can actually develop is start looking for agility outside of agility. Now, I want to be mindful of the time as well. I've got a moral of a personal question. Maybe to start wrapping things up. There are so many people or couples that are fighting over building an IKEA cabinet. You managed to write an entire book with your husband. How was that? It was the best, one of the best, apart from making children, the best things we've ever done as a couple. We were in the throes of being new parents. And all that we were talking about was parenting 
and having a project that we could do together that was ours and nothing to do with um, chores around the house or how much sleep we'd had, all the normal conversations was just what we needed. It was so amazing uh, to see. I mean, my husband is, he is a, uh, he's a certified, well, professional scrum master. He's got his PSM one because he came on one of my courses and he, I've talked to him about scrum for the whole time I've known him. So he is very well versed in it, but <laughs> he has, like we're saying like mixing different skill sets. He doesn't come from a, a scrum background. He, um, he does completely different careers and seeing him do what he's good at and learning new stuff together was just makes you appreciate the person a lot more. We did have, of course we had moments where we go, we're going to stop tonight and we're going to carry on tomorrow <laughs> like any team would do. But yeah, it was, I don't know if I'd recommend it for all, uh, all couples, or all families, all friendships. It's uh, it certainly pushes you to limits, but doing hard things gets the best benefits, I think. And doing this was hard. And so we've, um, yeah, it's wonderful to share it. I think that the two things that you and Sundar both mentioned is key, which is diversity of, of view, because I've learned about how adults learn and how to help people with what I do for a living by looking at my buddy who's a fireman, my buddy who works for the electric company and saying, well, how did you learn how to do that? And learning about their training skills and, you know, from the classroom to a, a literal training building, a fake building that they light on fire to train in the real world and, and all those skills. And then I'm like, oh, and I can make the connections on how to apply that to the teams I'm helping. But it's most people just get in this, they put their proverbial blinders on and they're like, well, to help people do this work, I should only look at that type of work because building a home, running electricity in a city or fighting a fire couldn't help me. How could that ever help me? But I think what the three of us, because of what we do and uh, you know, the stories you're telling about writing this book, I think it's obvious that we see the benefit of that. Is that an idea that like, what's something tactical we, we could tell the audience here or the readers of your book, are they going to get that from the book about how to go out and find that diversity and how other people around them learn or, or work and so that they can learn from them? Great question. That is very good. It's not in the book we talk about bringing together um, people of different perspectives. So if you, um, it's some research that came out of the Rebel Ideas book. Uh, if you've read that one, it's all about uh, homogeneity, if I've said that right, um, and groupthink and all those kind of things and, and finding the different perspectives. But it's a, around the same passion and it's maybe around colleagues. So it probably doesn't push the boundaries enough on that, uh, getting the different perspectives. I don't know what the, uh, there's a one trick that we can uh, have as a takeaway. I think what you do is asking friends and family who do different things and being curious. I mean, our, our company is called Curio Class, partly based from curiosity. Being curious is one of the biggest gifts we have in life. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, that's a great way to, to sum it up is being curious, asking somebody an open-ended question and say, tell me how you learn how to do that. Like I love finding somebody who's good at anything, whether it's an instrument, another language, um, 
a, a workplace skill saying, how did you learn to do that? I, that's to me, one of the most great party questions to ask in, in my social life. I love that. I might steal that. <laughs> Maybe one last question and then we'll, uh, we'll truly wrap up. If there would be one piece of advice that you can give your five year younger self, what would it be? Probably to not think as much to not overthink and to just do it, to listen to the feedback and to listen to your gut. And so, you know, with the learning and stuff I in your gut, you know, that you need to um, talk to people to be brave, to go out there, to write the article, to publish it and get people to feedback on it. You know that that's the case. It's just scary. And I think after seeing the incredible support that exists in uh, online communities and with, with the wonderful people that I get to meet, it's not that scary. It's actually rather wonderful. People are not that scary as many people think. <laughs> Becky Savile, thank you so much for being here. Workplace for uh, workplace learnings for humans. We'll drop the link in the show notes. It'll make sure that people will actually be able to buy it. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Becky. Thank you for having me. It's been great. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, joining our warm and welcoming Discord community, or attend recordings as a virtual audience. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility podcast.